Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 17 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. This episode is going to have a lot of anger on my part. I'm going to really let some thoughts fly, quite unlike past episodes, quite like I've never let my thoughts fly before on this show. We're, of course, going to react real quickly to the guilty verdict of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, and we're going to talk about a few other things. We are going to talk about the latest firestorm that Tucker Carlson has started and what he said that was so important. We're going to talk about Biden potentially bungling one of the greatest mistakes already in our country's history and so much more. But to start this off, as as of the recording of this episode, roughly two hours ago now, the verdict was read live in the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin or for the death of George Floyd last year in May. He was found guilty on all three counts, of course. He was found guilty for second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter. I think it was second-degree manslaughter. Guilty on all three counts after less than 24 hours of deliberations. It, it just it, it blows my mind. I mean, you look at this and think, oh, this, how could they find him guilty that quickly This when the evidence that came out was so dubious, not the least of which was the autopsy report confirming that Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose. He did not die of suffocation or asphyxiation or anything along those lines. And Floyd himself had a criminal history. There's there's plenty of room for reasonable doubt here. Certainly, at the very least, all it takes is one juror to disagree. Each guilty verdict has to be unanimous. How could they possibly come to this conclusion? Well, it's actually not that difficult to see why. Two articles I'm going to share with you guys, or one I'm going to talk about and one I'm going to share with you guys. An article that I actually wrote for American Greatness. BLM terrorists, because that's what they are. They're far-left domestic terrorists went to go vandalize the home in California of a defense witness who testified on behalf of Derek Chauvin and in the process vandalized the wrong one. Barry Broad, a former training officer with the Santa Rosa Police Department, testified during the defense of Derek Chauvin, who, among other things, he he concluded that from his view of the evidence, Chauvin's use of his knee to restrain Floyd was justified and that he was, quote, acting with objective reasonableness following Minneapolis PD policy and current standards of law enforcement in his interactions with Mr. Floyd. So for the crime of testifying in defense of Derek Chauvin, BLM terrorists dressed in all black went to his home in Santa Rosa early uh, that Saturday morning, this most recent Saturday, and they threw a severed pig's head onto the front porch. They seem to find a lot of, they seem to be able to kill quite a few pigs to get these pig heads from around these various protests. Because from what I know, these are real pig heads, by the way, real dead animal heads. And they splashed blood on the front of the building. Police were called to the house at about three in the morning by the homeowners who were not Mr. Broad. He actually does not live there anymore. So they vandalized the wrong house. But of course, they didn't care. They, they didn't care at all. They vandalized the wrong house. And another article, I'm, we're actually not going to post this link in the description of our video because we don't want to partake in this, which is blatant doxing. But a friend of ours actually pointed this out to us, that local affiliate WCCO CBS4 in Minnesota, yesterday, April 19th, the day before the verdict was read, posted an article giving descriptions of each of the 12 jurors and their numbers. They didn't give their names, but they gave their race. Six of them were white, six were black. They gave their general age groups. They described their occupations. They even described some of their uh, illnesses. They described one juror. I'm only going to go this far. They said one juror had diabetes. They went that far to talk about medical health issues, to talk about direct traits of each individual juror without giving their names, which is basically doxing. You're basically doxing in everything except their name. This was posted the day before the verdict. So you really wonder why it happened so quickly and how they unanimously on all three counts, all 12 of them came to guilty verdicts. This is why. 
as far as I'm concerned, this is the death of the American judicial system. And this started with the theft of the 2020 election. And yes, YouTube, this will be cut, but that is what happened. The 2020 election was stolen and multiple cases were brought up with overwhelming evidence in Georgia and all the swing states. And every single case was dismissed uh, for technical reasons, whether it was moot or standing or incorrectly filed wrong jurisdiction, whatever. They never dismissed a single case on the merits. And the Supreme Court punted when they came, when they were faced with that big lawsuit by like 20 different states that all sued on behalf of the states where elections were conducted normally and legally. They punted because they were afraid of the mob, which is what they knew would happen. Antifa and BLM spent the whole year burning America down over George Floyd's overdose death, because that's what it was. And they were going to burn America down if Chauvin was not found guilty for a murder he didn't commit. And that process, which started with their failure to save the 2020 election, continued and ended today. And this only has implications for other cases. So already they're going to move on with their anger. I believe they will riot tonight regardless because, you know, they're kind of like they're like Eagles fans. You know, they riot even when they win. It won't be as bad as it was last year, but there will be riots. But they'll move right along. They'll move on to the Dante Wright case. They'll demand that that cop be found guilty of five counts of murder. Kyle Rittenhouse, the kid who defended himself from Antifa and BLM terrorists last year and actually killed two of them because they tried to kill him. One of them actually had a gun and tried to kill him, and he killed – and by the way, you could argue he kind of cleaned up the streets a little bit. One of them was a pedophile, and the other was a, a former burglar, and he – the video evidence clearly shows it was self-defense. They attacked him. They swung a skateboard at his head. One of them pulled a gun on him, and he shot and killed them in self-defense. They're going to throw the book at him. He's going to be convicted of every single count probably. He's going to get life in jail, as Derek Chauvin, Officer Chauvin, most likely will. This isn't justice anymore. This is mob rule. And the only thing you got to ask yourself at this point is where do we go from here? What is Where does this lead? What is the eventual final end goal here of those mobs and those who have unleashed the mobs? And that, of course, is a very open-ended question. We will address it with the when we eventually get to our main topic for this episode. But this is just a... This is just a day that almost takes the fight out of you completely. I'm not giving up completely just yet. I'm not blackpilled. I, I really don't like taking the black pill like so many of my friends have, but it's not looking good, guys. It's not it's not looking good. Jacob, what do you what do you say on this? Well, the initial video is what most people go on. They, that's all they know about the case. Most people didn't watch the trial. If you watch the – of course, they broadcast the trial live in, in the interest uh, – in public interest because it was such a high-profile trial – but if you went and you watched the YouTube streams, you're looking at 6,000, 7,000 viewers. Sometimes it might hit 8,000. Most people didn't watch any of the trial. They relied uh, on the news media to tell them what was going on in the trial. And, of course, the news media was looking for a guilty verdict from the very start. That was obvious. They considered Chauvin guilty. They wanted him convicted on all three counts. And so anyone, just your average casual observer, back whenever this happened, they saw the initial streamers, the stream videos that showed Chauvin kneeling what appeared to be kneeling on on Floyd's neck and so their initial reaction was horror that this police officer would kneel on this guy's neck for eight or nine minutes and then you they see the outrage you see the riots and so their reaction is okay well a lot of this is justified I don't agree with the, some of the more radical rioting and then you jump forward to the trial they're not watching the trial they they're like well why are we even having this discussion why are we even having a trial it was all on film we saw this police officer kneel and strangle this guy to death by kneeling on his neck Let's just convict him and get it over with so we can move on. So when they hear that he was found guilty on all three counts, it's not that much of a surprise. In fact, it's a matter of relief to your average low information, low IQ person who doesn't really take the effort, the extra step to judge the facts based on what they are. And they just listen to what the news media tells them. 
So initially, whenever I saw the video, of course, like most people, I was thinking, okay, well, this is an obvious incident of police brutality. This person needs to be fired. They need to be charged with with manslaughter, possibly murder. But then the body cam footage from two of the officers was leaked. And it wasn't leaked until a couple of months after after Chauvin had knelt on George Floyd, until a month after the worst of the rioting was over. And it was leaked, I believe, by the Daily Mail. And so I watched the videos posted on YouTube, still available now. And it told a completely different story than the initial narrative that was presented after we all saw Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's back or his neck. Now, it may not have even been his neck. It may have been his shoulder blade. Right. It and was this, all a matter of angle at that point. Exactly, yeah. And he, he moved his knee, and this was something that was pointed out in the trial. Chauvin moved his knee around on George Floyd several times. So at one point it may have been on the neck, one point on the back, one point on the shoulder. But in the body cam footage, it was very obvious that, first of all, there was nothing racial about this. Secondly, Chauvin was clearly not trying to hurt George Floyd, especially not trying to kill him. He saw Floyd. Floyd was being uh, – he was not getting in the car like they wanted him to get into the car. He was not sitting in the car like they, uh, they wanted him to do. He kept complaining about uh, the fact that he couldn't breathe, that he was claustrophobic. So they he asked to be pulled out of the car. So they pulled him out of the car. They put him on the ground. He lied down on the ground, and then they kept him subdued on the ground until the ambulance arrived, which was eight, eight to nine minutes. So during that time, Floyd did ask to be let up. He asked to be to be allowed to stand. He continued to say that he couldn't breathe. He started saying that he was dying. But from the police officer's perspective, he was saying this stuff in the car. Like he was already saying this stuff in the car and claiming he was claustrophobic. And you got to remember, they deal with people all the time that come up with excuses for why they don't want to go to jail. And Floyd had already said, I can't go to jail. He had already repeated this over and over again. So from their their perspective, this guy's probably just saying stuff to avoid getting, you know, avoid going to jail, being charged for this counterfeit $20 bill. So, and then in the training that they, and, uh, and Chauvin's attorney actually showed that in the training, they were taught to kneel on the person who was exhibiting these, you know, these, this behavior the way, the same way that Chauvin did. So from my perspective, Chauvin was simply following his training to, you know, by the book. Now, Arguably, you could say that he should have recognized, okay, he shouldn't have been robotic about it. He shouldn't have thought, okay, I've got to follow my training in this particular instance. He should have recognized that Floyd needed to sit up, needed to stand up. And by that count, you could make a make a valid argument that George Floyd would not have died, even with all the fentanyl in the system, that he would not have died if he had not had that encounter with the police. And by that argument, you could make a reasonable argument that Chauvin deserves to be convicted of manslaughter. But – to convict him of murder, uh, I mean, unless you already have a bias going into it and you didn't watch the trial, you didn't watch the body cam footage. I mean, honestly, you don't even need to watch the trial. Just watch the body cam footage, and it it tells everything you need to know about what happened. And in fact, there was body cam footage that I didn't see that wasn't posted to YouTube that was showed during the trial. A bystander went up and confronted Chauvin about what he did. He told him that what he did was wrong. He shouldn't have knelt on uh, George Floyd. And Chauvin explained why he did it. He said, well, you've got a you got a big guy who's obviously on something. You've got to try to restrain them the best you can. And it was obvious he wasn't trying to hurt him, wasn't trying to kill him. It was just a matter of him following his police training. And, you know, I think the fault here is with the police training, the way that they're trained to, to kneel. Not with the officer himself, but again, you could make a you could you could make a valid argument that Chauvin should have recognized the situation, sat George Floyd up on a you know sat him up or stood him up and waited for the ambulance, but you know he had no way to know that this was going to happen. Chauvin's greatest fault in this whole instance is not being optics conscious. 
you've got all these people that are filming him that are going to post this to uh, to their different streaming sites, going to post this to YouTube. He should have known that this was going to go viral, that he was going to be charged with something if, if Floyd happens to die. But to convict him of murder, this is obvious that the jury was intimidated. I mean, this, there's no other conclusion that you can come to if you saw the body cam footage and you know the facts of the situation. Yeah, and for those who are now suggesting, because there was a glimmer of hope when the his defense pointed out that Max, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, of course, in a viral video, spoke to rioters in Brooklyn Center and said, basically, uh, I'm trying to remember her exact words, she basically said, we need to be more confrontational, we need to show them we mean business, and we need to get a guilty verdict. She literally explicitly is calling for violence if we do not get a guilty verdict. And the judge conceded, he was like, yeah, that could very well be... You, that could lead to this whole thing being overturned if you were to appeal it, but you have to appeal at first. He did not grant a mistrial right then and there. But if anyone thinks that that's actually going to happen, if they that they were able to intimidate 12 jurors, you really think they won't be able to intimidate a single judge? That judge would have to literally have a death wish if he's going to single-handedly overturn this verdict, even though there's a legitimate cause there between Maxine Waters and Biden. You know, the so-called president of the United States, Joe Biden, in the Oval Office said – he was, quote, praying that the verdict would be the right verdict and also said that the evidence was, quote, overwhelming. That was his, the word he used, overwhelming, that in his opinion, basically, Chauvin is guilty. And he said this before the verdict. So, Yeah, so, I mean, every politician out there who has commented publicly on this has already convicted Chauvin. I mean, you can't imagine a more biased situation that, I mean, how can you, if you're a juror, think about it. You've got to think about yourself. You've got to think about your family. You've got to think about your future. I guess if you happen to be wealthy... And as soon as this is over with, if you can immediately leave the country, disappear, and never be found again, then you could vote to to acquit Chauvin. But in any other situation, if you're a normal person, your name is obviously going to get released. Yeah, people are going to eventually find out who you are. And as you mentioned, the, the local news source essentially docks these juror members. I mean, we know everything about their life's history, their employment. It wouldn't be that hard for people to figure out who they are. And we saw the doxing that occurred after the Capitol riot. We know that leftists are more than willing to turn over family members and friends to the mob if if they feel like it's going to advance the cause of racial justice. So in this environment, in this climate, how can you not quickly produce a guilty verdict? I mean, it, it wasn't surprising. I had guessed they were going to go two for three and that Chauvin was going to get life in prison eventually. But, I mean, it's not really surprising that they went three for three. Yeah, I was a little too optimistic and I guess you could say naive. I predicted that they would find him guilty of the manslaughter charge but not the murder charges. Well, in the the lawyer also made the same mistake that the uh, that the attorney for Donald Trump made whenever in his second impeachment trial. They're just arguing based on the facts. They're, they, they're treating the legal system like it's a legal system, and they're not appealing to the people. They're not appealing to the public. They're acting like the system isn't broken, which it is. Right. They're, they're acting like we're still living in a system of checks and balances like we still live in a nation of laws. And this is something we're going to get and get into in our featured topic about the our system of laws in this country and how exactly we move forward in a system in which we have a huge portion of our citizens that don't recognize the validity of our laws. It's probably hard to imagine that there's few things out there that could enrage me even more than this, but there is one of them. And this was this kind of has obviously been buried under more recent news, but this is worth talking about. So Joe Biden again, the alleged president of the United States who supposedly won the election, says that he is going to withdraw all American troops from Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. Now, when you see that headline initially, you think, oh, wow, great. We're finally getting out of this stupid 20-year war. 
then what you're not seeing is the truth about how this withdrawal came to be. The media is, of course, all too happy to finally give up on the military industrial complex for the sake of boosting Biden and adding one more notch under Biden's belt. You know, this is going to be put on his Wikipedia page. They're all going to cite this as one of his big accomplishments. He ended the Afghanistan war. No, he didn't. The Afghanistan war had already been negotiated to an end over a year ago now under the Trump administration. On February 29th, 2020, over a year ago, the official withdrawal agreement was signed in Afghanistan. It's called the Agreement for Bringing Peace to Afghanistan, and it was signed between representatives of the Afghan government and the Taliban, overseen, of course, by the United States, which at the time was led by President Donald J. Trump. And that deal ultimately, with a variety of conditions, of course, ultimately said that American troops would be withdrawn from the nation of Afghanistan by May 1st of 2021. So Trump negotiated this knowing full well that that would either be within his second term or that would be within his successor's term. But either way, he negotiated that, the final withdrawal deal from the longest war in American history, a war that is now 20, almost 20 years old. It is by far the longest conflict in our history. It's even longer than the Vietnam War. There are some troops fighting in this war right now who are younger than the war itself. Trump negotiated that. Trump made that happen. And Joe Biden, I'm actually going to give him some credit here because I do think this is one of the few things Biden himself actually did. I don't think his handlers told him to do this because he's a petty little man with a massive ego who just wants to undo everything Trump did or, if he can, even more insultingly, claim any aspect of Trump's legacy for himself. This is Biden just screwing around with something Trump did, muddying the waters just enough that he can take credit for it and say, I did this, knowing that the media and and the Democratic Party and the political class and social media, they're all going to sell and Hollywood, they're all going to celebrate it and they're all going to give him credit for this only because he muddied up and can say, oh, no, no, I set this final withdrawal date. And not only that, but it also is another example of the same pointless symbolism that you see from career politicians time and time again, like this guy, that Trump had no time for. Trump didn't care about symbolic gestures. Biden obviously did this. He set the date for September 11th. It's not hard to figure out why he chose that date. He's trying to mark the symbolism of to say, you know, so he can give that speech. You already hear it in his voice. You hear the platitudes he's going to say. 20 years after the worst terrorist attack in our history, 20 years after a dark day for our nation, the war is finally over and we can turn the page on a new era. You, you know what he's going to say, and he's going to be able to say that because he set that date for such a symbolic day. And of course, former President Donald Trump, the legitimate winner of the 2020 election, did issue a statement condemning this for several reasons, saying, I wish Joe Biden wouldn't use September 11th as the date to withdraw our troops from Afghanistan for two reasons. First, we can and should get out earlier. 19 years is enough. In fact, far too much and way too long. I may early withdrawal possible by already pulling much of our billions of dollars of equipment out and more importantly, reducing our military presence to less than 2,000 troops from the 16,000 level that there was. Secondly, September 11th represents a very sad event and period for our country and should remain a day of reflection and remembrance, honoring those great souls we lost. Getting out of Afghanistan is a wonderful and positive thing to do. I plan to withdraw on May 1st. We should keep as close to that schedule as possible, end quote. So he's right. By picking a totally irrelevant date, a date that doesn't mean anything in our history, we can celebrate that day as the day that we ended the longest war in our history and keep September 11th as the commemorative day, the day that we mourn and reflect on what happened 20 years ago. But, of course, Biden just couldn't allow that. Biden, with his ego, because you know in a lot of ways he knows, I think he does know his presidency is still going to more or less be overshadowed by Trump's, 
even years later. They're going to have the individual accomplishments like the COVID relief bill or withdrawing from Afghanistan. But at the end of the day, he is going to be forever remembered as the president who came after Donald Trump. And he's determined to try to make sure that's not all he's remembered for. But and he's willing to do so by playing with the lives of our troops. That's four extra months that we stay in Afghanistan. And the Taliban has already issued warnings saying that if we violate any of the conditions of the previous agreement signed under the Trump administration, there could be more attacks. And certainly delaying the withdrawal date by over four months could qualify as a violation of the order. Obviously not saying that justifies more terrorist attacks on our boys in uniform, but they're going to, they could potentially be more attacks. There could be troops, any troops that die between May 1st and September 11th this year will be, their blood will be on Joe Biden's hands. And of course he doesn't care. He couldn't care less about them. He wants to be able to have that meaningless symbolic gesture of withdrawing on September 11th. Either that or we see another attack or multiple attacks. And guess what? That justifies staying in Afghanistan after all because, oh, the situation is just not safe. We have to stay there longer. And then the war continues on for another 20 years. The agreement they made on the withdrawal this year, the terms of the agreement, it could have been made in 2002. They, they could have had this exact same agreement back in 2002 after they had already overthrown the Taliban. Because you think about what were the objectives. The, objective, the objectives were dislodging al-Qaeda and overthrowing the Taliban. Well, they accomplished that in the first few months of the war. So once they pull out, and Pat Buchanan wrote a fantastic article about this, he mentioned that once we pull out of Afghanistan, all that's going to happen is the Taliban is eventually going to take over. It's going to be like South Vietnam, the fall of Saigon all over again. Right, right. He compared it to Saigon, and there's nothing that we can do to change that. The Taliban already controls almost half of the country. The weak government, and and the point he brought out was that back whenever we had 100,000 troops in Afghanistan, those 100,000 troops... Uh, paired with the Afghan government, our, basically our puppet government, wasn't able to completely root out the Taliban. And how can you? There's a fantastic Russian war movie. I, I'll have to look up the name. I can't remember the name of it. But in the it was about whenever the Russian the Soviets were invading Afghanistan. You had the, the Russian troops were fighting, of course. You got rocks and caves and everything. And they're fighting the Mujahideen. And this the, one of the Afghan troops, he's firing at the Russian troops, kills a bunch of them, and then they chase him up to the top of a, of, of a mountain and he just disappears. And he, what it was is there was a there was a crater in the top of the mountain. He just jumped inside, and there's catacombs of caves inside that mountain. And of course, the Russian troops they they're not going to pursue him after him. They don't know the layout of that cave. And this is how it is. This is how the terrain is in Afghanistan. You're not going to completely eliminate the Taliban. You're not going to turn Afghanistan into a Western style liberal democracy. So once we pull out, and like you said, any lives that are lost between May 1st or May 11th, I guess was Trump's withdrawal date and September 11th. May 1st. May 1st between, and September 11th. Yeah, so in, those, in, that, uh, in that time period, any American troops that are lost, those lives are just going to be completely wasted because technically every American life that's been lost since 2002 in that country has been wasted because we accomplished our objectives within the first few months of the war. The, Af- the al-Qaeda was completely dislodged from the country. They were chased into Pakistan. And we made strategic attacks on al-Qaeda and other countries outside of Afghanistan. Our mission in Afghanistan was done. So every American life that was lost in Afghanistan didn't accomplish anything for our country. It really didn't accomplish anything for the country of Afghanistan because in five years from now, after we pull out, the Taliban is going to be back in charge. According to the U.S. Department of Defense, this is from BBC, the total military expenditure in Afghanistan from October 2001 until September 2019 was $778 billion. That's about our entire military budget for one year. So in in the course of the Afghan war, we spent an entire year's military budget just on Afghanistan. Of course, that doesn't count our occupation of Iraq and other countries. 
And I mean, our national debt is what, like 25 trillion at this point. We don't have this kind of money to be spending on Afghanistan. And but interestingly enough, it's funny, Liz Cheney is still complaining about the withdrawal. She's pulling out the whole, you know, we're letting the enemy know when we're withdrawing the same old tropes that the Republican war hawks have always run with the, the wars in the Middle East. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm glad we're getting out, but it's it's about 19 years too late. So I wanted to move on to the main topic here then to move away from the things that really just get your blood boiling like crazy and turn to something that is still at its core. This is a topic that is still obviously cause for great concern, if not anger. But the fact that it is now being discussed at the level, at the great mainstream level, it is now being discussed, or at least it was when this came up uh, about a week ago or so. This is the latest firestorm from Tucker Carlson. Now, of course, it seems like every other week the left is trying to cancel him. They're trying to boycott his advertisers. They're trying to go after him for whatever, because he's by far the most popular right-wing media personality in America right now. And some do see him as, other than Donald Trump, he is the leader of the American right right now. In terms of the not necessarily ideological because he is just a talk show host, but in terms of the core issues that matter the most to the base that got Trump elected and that hidden base that is the key to possibly turning things around. So this is first Tucker replaying a clip from an appearance he had on Mark Stein's show. Mark Stein was guest hosting the 7 p.m. slot on Fox News last Thursday. I'm laughing because this is one of about 10 stories that I know you've covered um, where the government shows preference to people who have shown absolute contempt for our customs, our laws, mm. our system itself, and they're being treated better than American citizens. Now, I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting mm. ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. Mm. If, if look, mm. if this was happening in your house, if you were in sixth grade, for example, and without telling you, your kid, your parents adopted a bunch of new siblings and gave them brand new bikes and let them stay mm. up later and help them with their homework and gave them twice the allowance that they gave you, you would say to your siblings, you know, I think we're being replaced by by kids that our parents love more. And it would be kind of hard to argue against you because look at the evidence. So right. this matters on a bunch of different levels, but on the most basic level, it's a voting rights question. In a democracy, one person equals one vote. If you change the population, you dilute the political power of the people who live there. So every time they import a new voter, I become disenfranchised as a mm. current voter. So I don't understand why we don't understand this. I mean, everyone wants to make a racial issue out of it. Ooh, the you know white replacement theory. No, no, no. This is a voting rights question. I have less political power because they're importing a brand new electorate. Why should I sit back and take that? The power that I have yeah. as an American guaranteed at birth is one man, one vote, and they're diluting it. No, they're not allowed to do that. That is, can we just give a round of applause for Tucker Carlson, everybody? Like, bravo, bravo, that he brought that up. In such a bold way that needed to be said. And he's right. And we've said this before. The more viciously they attack, the more right you know he must be. Like, again, with the Georgia law, the voter integrity law in Georgia, when that passed, and now every other company is trying to basically get that law repealed through mob rule or through intimidation of the populace, if you will, by withdrawing their business from Georgia. It's because they know that law is going to work. It's going to succeed in its goal, which is to stop voter fraud. And the voter fraud is what they needed to win those elections in Georgia last year. And it's what they needed to win again in the coming election cycles. 
The same is true here with Tucker. They are going after him because he is saying what needs to be said, what has been their goal, with the left's goal, with immigration for at least, I would say maybe within the last 10 years or so. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when it started, but it definitely is something that has desperately, and that, like Tucker said, we need to have a national conversation about this. Well, he mentions that it's not a racial issue, that it's a voting rights issue, but he's missing that the left is making this a – the Democratic Party is making this a racial issue because they don't believe in one man, one vote. Whenever you bring in large numbers of immigrants, they typically move into immigrant enclaves just like they did 100 years ago, and they don't vote one man, one vote. They vote as groups. So if the Democratic Party wants to get their votes, all they've got to do is go talk to their community leaders and their community leaders will disseminate Democratic propaganda down to the rank and file. The rank and file will line up and they'll go vote for, uh, for Democrats. I was talking to someone who was a poll worker in Maryland, and she was talk- She was just baffled at how like 98% of all the votes coming into Prince George's County that she counted were all for Joe Biden. And she was like, wow, this is, this is just depressing because she's a Republican. And I said, well, of course, that, that shouldn't be surprising because Prince George's County has so many immigrants, so many naturalized U.S. citizens and the children of naturalized citizens – they get absolutely no information from the right. They don't watch Fox News because they've been taught that Fox News hates them. They don't listen to any of Trump's speeches because they've taught that they've been taught that Trump hates them. So they're only hearing one point of view, and they're they're typically they're hearing second or third hand accounts. I remember I was talking to one Guatemalan. He he could barely speak English, but he had, he he's an American citizen. He votes. He was asking me who I'm going to vote for. This was uh, this was right before the election. This is over in PG County. He was asking me who I'm going to vote for. I said, I'm voting for Trump. And he said, why? He's trying to ask me, why, why would you vote for Trump? And I explained on taxes how my my uh, standard deduction was doubled under Trump. And he didn't really ask him, well, I asked him, do you know what a standard deduction is? And it was kind of hard. He didn't have any idea what that was. I was trying to explain. I was like, well, this is this is pointless. How am I going to explain what you know? my taxes have gone down because of the standard deduction? He doesn't know anything about the tax code. And he was claiming that uh, that under Trump, his taxes were raised, that he's had, he's got to pay more taxes because of Trump. And he's claiming that under Biden, his taxes are going to go down. And uh, and then eventually he mentioned that he makes less than four hundred thousand dollars. And he was, of course, in the broken English, he was trying to explain it to. It, it was very obvious how this works. The Democratic Party disseminates their talking points to the leaders of immigrant communities. The leaders of immigrant communities then disseminate. It's like the game of telephone. They disseminate that information to heads of families. The heads of families disseminate it to their family members who aren't really politically active. And so by the time you get to somebody like him who doesn't know much about politics and doesn't probably doesn't care much about politics, he's about four or five people down the line in this game of telephone. So all he knows is my taxes have gone up under Trump. He probably hasn't been paying attention to what his taxes are. He's just been told that. And then under Biden, his taxes are going to go down. He's like, okay, well, I'm voting for Biden. And this is how it works whenever you have large groups of immigrant communities who move in. The Democrats don't have to deal with each individual voter. And this is why Republicans are so far behind the Democratic Party and winning these areas because they don't understand how it works. you got to talk to these people in groups. you got to appeal to them in groups. And they've actually had seen some success with that in Florida. That's why Republican votes have actually gone up in Florida. They're actually gaining with Puerto Ricans, with people of Cuban ancestry, because they're dealing with them in groups. And this is just the way this is the way the democracy in America, that democracy in America works. Whenever you don't have people who vote based on their individual needs, they vote based on their group needs, on their ethnicity's needs. They vote based on the identity that's been shoved down their throat. And to that previous point that Tucker obviously is very hesitant. He's quick to say, oh, this isn't a racial thing. But as you pointed out, the Democrats make it a racial thing. 
And that essentially, to me, boils down to the uh, the old saying of the lady doth protest too much, you know, that if they if they're so quick to make it a racial thing and that's their first default, whenever Tucker says, you know, oh, replacement, they need to say, oh, you're talking about white replacement. Well, that's kind of, you know, um, or maybe a Freudian slip is another analogy you could say. They're letting the cat out of the bag. They're essentially admitting by that tactic, yes, it is a racial thing. We just don't like that you're talking about it because if you talk about it, it may inevitably come back to the racial element. I mean, that's really what it is because they, they are not bringing in immigrants from Europe. They're not bringing in immigrants from Poland or Hungary or Italy for that matter. And the thing is how you know this is a racial thing. And yes, they make it a racial thing because that is their end goal here, but because that's a component of it. They've been ta- Democrats have been talking like this for years. One of the things I will never forget, and we're going to play this video for you. This was House Speaker, still House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi in 2018, in February of 2018, during the debate on DACA, on whether or not DACA was going to be saved or when it was going to be killed by the Trump administration. I'm reminded of um, my own grandson. He's um, Irish, English, whatever, whatever. And I just got to stop right there, too. You, you heard that, and if you're watching the video, she's waving her hand dismissively. Irish, English, whatever, whatever. You, you see how... How she sounds disgusted to even talk about her own heritage, her own family. That's her grandson. That's her – that's a member of her family, and she's disgusted to talk about her own heritage. Italian-American is the mix, but he looks more like the other side of the family, shall we say. He's – and when he had his – Sixth, fifth birthday, sixth birthday, he had a very close friend whose name is Antonio, who's from Guatemala, and he has beautiful tan skin, beautiful brown eyes, and the rest. And notice then, in contrast, she describes this friend, this brown friend, as, oh, he's beautiful, it's beautiful brown skin, in contrast to her whatever, whatever, description of her own grandson. And um, this was such a proud day for me because when... My grandson blew out the candles on his cake. They said, did you make a wish? And he said, yes, I made a wish. He said, well, what is your wish? That's one proof. That's one piece of evidence right there. You know, the story's probably BS. Is because you're not supposed to ask the kid what they wished for. <laughs> and the wish won't come true if you ask what they wish for and they tell well, it. This, like, is, this is what Democrats do all the time. They'll use examples of conversations they had with their children or grandchildren. Remember, Beto O'Rourke did this. My son, I was talking to my eight-year-old son, and he said, well, I don't remember. It was on gun control or whatever. They make up these. They make it. They're clearly you, falsehoods. They're making these up. Yeah, that's where the literal meme comes from is, my three-year-old child asked me why there's systemic racism in the United States. And people on the right on Twitter would make fun of that. Like, it's, I'll, I'll, take, uh, I'll take stuff. That never happened for $500, Alex. Thank you very much. He said, I wish I had brown skin and brown eyes like Antonio. So beautiful. So beautiful. The beauty is in the mix. The face of the future for our country. Oh my gosh. uh, All American. The face of the future of our country is brown skin. That's what she's saying. She said the mix. You know, she stopped herself there because I think what we all, what she was going to say is the mix is just brown skin, a.k.a. not white skin. That is, and this is, this is a European-American, she, Pelosi, it's an Italian name. She's Italian, disgustingly describing how she hates her own heritage and hates the fact that I'm Irish and or that I'm Italian or whatever, and that, oh, I wish my grandson had brown skin and my grandson wishes. If this story is true, I hope this is not true. No six-year-old is going to think like that. Of course not, but, <laughs> if, but if it were true, it would be horrifying because it would show the indoctrination has worked because obviously Pelosi is speaking from a 
place of self-hatred. She clearly has nothing but disgust for her own race because she's bought into this crap, and they're trying to indoctrinate their, the future generations to think the same well, way. Well, it boils back to, uh, down to what I mentioned in the past, how, with the, uh, the way it works with liberal whites. They have been taught that the United States is going to become a quote-unquote majority-minority country within their lifetimes, and they see how black Democrats are revanchist. And they want to take over the party. They want to push all the white people out. They see how Hispanics are watching how black people are attaining power in the Democratic Party, and they're following the same example. They're basically trying to create Hispanic Latino nationalism. And then you got some – not with Asian Americans, it's not so much, but some of them try to do that too to a lesser extent. And so you got white liberals who run the party. They want to maintain their position of authority and power, and they figured the only way to do that is to show deference to non-white people and to diminish their own status and to – well, verbally – I should say verbally diminish their own status because notice Nancy Pelosi hasn't offered to give up her speakership to a woman of color. I haven't heard her offer any of the the, the members of the, the Congressional she's Black not, Caucus her speakership. She's not knocking down AOC's door to hand her the speaker's gavel. Exactly. So that's the way white liberals operate. They see that they their race is becoming a minority in America and so they see their best shot at holding on to power – is by belittling themselves and attacking their race. And th- this is a perfect example of that. And it's not just self-hating white elitists like Nancy Pelosi. This is, of course, happening among the members of, the, of that caucus of the Democratic Party of color. In 2019, as a sitting member of Congress, Ilhan Omar took the podium at a Black Lives Matter rally right in front of the United States Capitol on the east face of the Capitol and you know just denounced white supremacy, blah, blah, whatever, whatever. And she said, among many other things, quote, this is not going to be the country of the xenophobics. This is not going to be the country of white people, end quote. So you see what she did there? Two things. Obviously, one, the obvious declaration. This is not going to be a country for white people. What's that going to mean? What's, uh, what's that going to mean? Does that mean white people are a problem for you? Does that mean you want to – you don't want to just live with white people if you have a problem with them. You obviously want to do something with them. But also she says, you know, side by side – this is not the country of xenophobics or white people. So she's basically directly saying that if you're white, you're xenophobic. That's that's the that's the obvious illusion that's being made here. It's just they've been doing this for years. And the well, fact of course, that- in the anti-racist indoctrination that they're getting in school, and there was a principal of New York a private school actually recently came out and said this, uh, th- that this indoctrination, this anti-racist indoctrination is basically treating anyone who happens to have white skin – as being a white supremacist. So if you were born white, you're automatically a white supremacist. You should feel guilty about your whiteness. And uh, Tucker Carlson was correct. This this did spark off a firestorm, uh, not just on Twitter, but apparently in uh, in very, uh, very powerful activist circles. Uh, this is from the AP. Uh, Jonathan Greenblatt wrote a letter to Fox News, to Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott. Um, he said that Carlson's rhetoric was not just a dog whistle to racist. It was a bullhorn. Who is Jonathan Greenblatt, head of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation – okay, yeah, I've heard of the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, Greenblatt. Sounds like his uh, – whenever his ancestors decided to make up his last name, they couldn't decide if they wanted it in English or German, so they decided to, <laughs> to, to, to cram them together. I guess, he, I guess he makes up a great – he makes a great uh, typical white American. He's, uh, he's mixed English, German, Irish. He's got all this mixture in him. So anyway, he goes on uh, – he claims that the white – 
nationalist great replacement theory, otherwise known as white genocide, says that people of color are replacing white people through immigration in the Western world. Uh, it quotes the Southern Poverty Law Center. It says the white nationalist great replacement theory, otherwise known as white genocide, says people of color are replacing white people through immigration in the Western world. Some white supremacists also say that Jews and progressive politicians are furthering this change. And if you look it up, if you look at the Wikipedia article, their article for this for this idea is called, quote, white genocide conspiracy theory. So, I mean, so many things. And again, this is where they essentially this is a Freudian slip. This is Lady Duff protest too much because they're so quick to say, oh, this clearly must be about white people. This clearly must be about white people. They're kind of letting on. Okay, you know what? Maybe it is about white people. Otherwise, you wouldn't be talking about it so much. Just listen to it. I got to read you actually just the first couple paragraphs of this just so you get an idea of this Wikipedia, this supposedly unbiased source. Quote, the white genocide, white extinction, or white replacement conspiracy theory is a white supremacist belief that there is a deliberate plot often blamed on Jews to promote miscegenation, interracial marriage, mass non-white immigration, racial integration, low fertility rates, abortion, governmental land confiscation from whites, organized violence, and eliminationism in white-founded countries in order to cause the extinction of whites through forced assimilation and violent genocide. Okay, that was all one long sentence. Let me go find a kitchen sink real quick to throw in there as well because they just they threw an abortion and like environmentalism in there like like wait what and then well what's interesting whenever i started digging further into this is they claim that it's a complete conspiracy theory so it's just completely made up that this this is just white nationalists white supremacists who are coming up with this it's anti-semitic by the way even though that literally no one blames this on jews but okay exactly well again i was trying to figure i was trying to figure out where they get the the anti-semitism out of this but anyway so they claim that this is completely made up this so this is allegedly just a conspiracy theory it's complete myth but they will also they will also turn around and claim it's happening if they decide to praise it. So it's right. if you if you consider it a negative thing, if you consider the idea that white people in America are being replaced by non-white people, by people with tan skin and brown eyes, like people that uh, Nancy Pelosi fetishizes, if you claim that that's happening and you claim it's a good thing, then it is happening. But if you claim that it's a negative thing, then it's not happening. It's a conspiracy theory. It's actually it's actually not happening. So. People like this Jonathan Greenblatt who claim it's a complete – they claim that this rhetoric that Carlson is using is just a bullhorn for racists, that it's, it's all a conspiracy theory. This is very similar to the way anti-Semites treat the Holocaust. So anti-Semites will claim that the Holocaust never happened, that it's a complete myth. No, Hitler didn't gas the Jews, but then they nudged their buddies like it would have been pretty cool if he had. You know, they, they claim it never happened, but then they turn around and they wish it had happened. So that's why you got to be very, very – someone who claims that something did not happen or is not happening but then wishes it would, you got you got to really think, OK, do they actually believe that it's not happening or it didn't happen or are they just trying to cloak their personal bias against a particular group of people by – you know through intellectualism, by claiming that it never happened? It's like if somebody hates Jews and they are perfectly OK with the Holocaust happening – they can't claim that the Holocaust happened and then provoke anti-Jewish sentiment because people are naturally going to be very uh, sympathetic toward the Jews if they know that there were six million Jews who died in the Holocaust. So they try to erase the fact that the Holocaust happened. They've got to, get, they've got to tell people and convince people that it's a complete myth. It's completely made up by Jews to create sympathy for Jews. 
And it's the same way with this anti-replacement so-called myth. If you can convince people that white people are not being purposefully replaced, then it's much easier to gin up anti-white hatred. Whereas if people look around, they're like, well, wait a minute, the government seems to be very biased against white people and people of European descent. I mean, you got the Speaker of the House of Representatives claiming that she's she's happy her grandson wishes that he weren't white and claiming that the future face of America is brown. This is kind of weird that the government, people in high positions of authority are taking this position. But if you convince people that, no, 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 this, all this is a conspiracy theory, but whenever you, you can say, no, this is all a conspiracy theory that white people are not being replaced, then it's much easier to take an anti-white position. So in a way, people like Jonathan Greenblatt who are claiming it's a conspiracy theory, they're actually they're acting like anti-Semites. Yeah, and and going back to the Wikipedia article, there was actually everything you actually summarized there with those who say like they talk out of both sides of their mouth. They say it's a great thing when it's supposedly it's not happening, but it would be a great thing if it was. There's of course this page has generated a lot of uh, discussion, shall we say? And there are multiple archives of the talk page, which is where you can go on Wikipedia and see the various discussions that have happened between editors to discuss, you know, ways to improve the page ostensibly. You go to the, and we'll include links to all this in the description below, the fourth archive page. There's a section titled, quote, the conclusion that white genocide is a myth cannot be drawn from these references. And it lists the references because there's, there's in that intro I, I listed for you guys, there's a million references after like each and every kitchen sink item just to back up. Oh, this is how they blame abortion. This is how they blame Jews. And I'm just like, okay. And shout out to this one user. I don't even know if this user is still active anymore. Filter, opossum, whatever. <laughs> you got to love Wikipedia usernames sometimes. Um, he says, quote, anti-white sources to prove that white genocide is a myth. Why not quote the Turkish government to prove that the Armenian genocide never happened while you're at it? And uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. Exactly. And later he later goes on in that same thread to say this article mixes several different claims into one unified grand conspiracy theory. On one hand, people simply stating facts about demography projections and their discontent with it are taken as proponents of the theory. And at other points in the article, the theory is described as a plot by some group to intentionally cause the extinction of white people. Will a speech by Joe Biden be sufficient for some of the claims at least? And he then goes on to link this video from 2016 of then vice president, now the alleged president, Joe Biden. And this video is still up miraculously. It's not a dead link yet. Not only our Muslim communities, but African communities, Asian communities, Hispanic communities. And and the wave still continues. It's not going to stop, nor should we want it to stop. As a matter of fact, uh, um, it's one of the things I think we can be most proud of. So, uh, so there's a second thing in that black box, an unrelenting stream of immigration, nonstop, nonstop. Folks like me who were Caucasian of European descent for the first time in 2017 will be in an absolute minority in the United States of America. Absolute minority. Fewer than 50% of the people in America from then and on will be white European stock. That's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a source of our strength. And by <laughs> the world does he live in? Exactly. And by the way, fun fact, I just noticed this. Sitting to his left, this is 2016. Sitting to his left is none other than Alejandro Mayorkas, now the DHS yep. secretary. Mm-hmm. But um, so then back to the Wikipedia discussion. This is fantastic. So another one of these established Wikipedia users with the username North by South Baranoff says, quote, 
a speech which states that diversity is the strength of American society is not suggesting that white people will go extinct. So our boy Opossum comes back here and says, quote, you lack reading comprehension. The speech states that whites are intentionally made into a minority, and it's stated by the vice president. Numerous examples are listed as proponents of the conspiracy theory for stating the same thing with a disapproving instead of an approving tone, to which North by South responds, quote, if that's what you took away from the speech, it's evident that your views on cultural, ethnic and racial diversity are outside the mainstream, that your fringe beliefs are not reflected in this article is a feature of Wikipedia, not a bug. To which the section then ends with a possum uh, concluding, saying, quote, if Joe Biden had dropped the not in that's not a bad thing, he would be in this article as promoting the conspiracy theory. Yep. And it's true. And you've got to notice, too, the way that smugness, that arrogance and condescension with which all Wikipedia users talk like this. There's these self-righteous keyboard warriors, these fat neck beards in their basements who edit Wikipedia nonstop because they have no day jobs. These people talk as if there's no possibility in any parallel universes that they are wrong. And I remember seeing this a while ago. I wish I had screenshotted this or saved the link. There was a talk page, as another talk page for either the Trump article, the article on Donald Trump himself, or something Trump-related, where one user pointed out and said, could this article be any more biased? Could we at least get some sources and references in here to provide the other side so there's balance? To which another one of these established users said something along the lines of, roughly paraphrasing here, our purpose is not to represent both sides and have balance our goal is to reflect what the mainstream media says that was that was their that was what they said because of course legitimate sources verifiable sources like vice or you know cnn pink news MSNBC. yeah exactly but fox and breitbart is too much so this and this is what they do they immediately just rush to self-confirmation that oh this is a conspiracy theory because it's just a circle of all these sources saying it's a conspiracy theory and yeah like you said if they talk about it positively, oh, it's a good thing. It's diversity is our strength. But if you talk about it negatively, oh, no, it's a conspiracy theory. They're eating their cake and having it too. So in this Wikipedia article, they spend a significant amount of time on Renaud Camus. He's a uh, French philosopher who wrote two books about uh, – he's allegedly, I guess, like the, the, godfather, the godfather of this replacement theory, the major uh, thought uh, initiator of this in, the, in modern day thought. And this, his works became extremely popular among right-wing parties in Europe, became popular among right-wing personalities in the United States as well as Canada. And this, uh, this geographer, Landis McKellar, he criticized Camus' uh, thesis for assuming that third and fourth generation immigrants are somehow not French. This is, uh, this is a problem. I haven't actually read Camus' works. I'd never actually even heard of this guy until Tucker Carlson mentioned this, and I ended up uh, digging down and finding out what this was about. But apparently people who would claim that this is a conspiracy theory that say, OK, well, you're arguing that the French are going to be replaced by North Africans. But that's making the assumption that immigrants don't, don't assimilate, that they're that second, third, fourth generation Muslims aren't going to just become French because you could be French and be Muslim. You could have Moroccan ancestry or whatever. And this is true if you transfer it to the United States. So they would argue, well, if you argue that white people or Americans, American st uh, stock is being replaced by foreigners, that's making the assumption that Guatemalans, Mexicans, Hondurans can't become Americans. But I would argue that if you can potentially be assimilated – so let's take the Italians for instance. The last of the Italian wave came in the 1920s. There were some Italians who trickled in later in that, but the majority of Italians immigrated to the United States between 1880 and 1920, 1925. 1924, I believe, is whenever they passed the immigration bill that strictly limited immigration to the United States. This also this curbed Southern and Eastern European immigration. 
So those first, second, third generation Italians were looked at as Italians by their fellow Americans. They identified as Italian. But if you encounter Americans of Italian ancestry today, most of them are just considered white. They see themselves as white. Other Americans see themselves as white. And this is true with other immigrant groups, with the Germans. The first, second generation of Germans were viewed as German. They weren't seen as American. And this is why in World War One, the government was extremely suspicious of Germans because a bunch of them had just arrived from the continent because they were looked on with suspicion because people wondered, are they loyal to Germany or are they loyal to the United States, which was a legitimate question when you've got first and second generation immigrants. By now, these Americans with German last names in Iowa, North Dakota, like Lauren Boebert, no one thinks of them as German. Sure, they're of German stock, but they wouldn't go to Germany and be recognized as German. They can't speak German, and if they do speak it, they speak it with an American accent. They're as American as you and I are. So this is the difference between assimilation and tribalism. What people who claim that Americans are being replaced by foreigners and the argument that Tucker Carlson is making isn't that foreigners can't assimilate eventually or that their descendants can't assimilate into the nation that they move to. They're arguing that groups of foreigners are moving here into ethnic enclaves. They're being used by the Democratic Party. They're being taken advantage of rather by the, by the Democratic Party to vote in blocks for Democrats for strict electoral purposes. When Pelosi argues that it's a good thing that we're inviting non-white peoples to the United States, when, when uh, Joe Biden brags that the United States is bringing non-white peoples to the United States and that this is something to be celebrated – what they're celebrating is the continuance of democratic power because they see by bringing in groups of immigrants into ethnic enclaves, they can use them as voting blocks for their coalition. And this is why the criticism that this is just a conspiracy theory because it's essentially arguing that future generations of immigrants can't assimilate doesn't hold water. Ideally, we want immigrants to assimilate, but they can't assimilate if they're continually surrounded by their fellow ethnics. If you have an Italian, if you have five Italians that move to your community, their children are going to be Americans. They're not going to be Italians. They're, they're going to raise their children to speak English. They're going to raise their children to assimilate because they want their children to succeed. They want their children to be looked at as Americans and to fit in. They don't want their children to be looked at as different. If you have 5,000 Italians move to a community – they're not going to want their children to assimilate. They're not going to want their children to forget Italian and forget their Italian heritage and be looked at as just Americans because they they are going to look around and they go to the barber shop. The barber speaks Italian. They go to the grocery store. Everyone's speaking Italian. They're basically living in a little Italy. They've got an ethnic enclave and they're like, well, why do we want to become Americans? We're Italian. We're very proud of our heritage and our ethnicity and we're going to hold on to our Italian ancestry. We want to pass it on to, our, to future generations. That is what – no American should encourage. That is what no American should want because what that creates is a tribalistic society in which you have groups of people living in separate neighborhoods. They don't trust each other. You've basically created a mini United Nations within the American borders. And this is what people like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and white liberal elites want to create. And we're going to see this eventually in uh, an article that we're, I'm going to bring up in a, here in a minute. And as we hinted at earlier in this episode, they have been talking about this for quite a while. And we brought up comments from Pelosi in 2018 and Omar in 2019, but it's been going back even further back before that. This is from Voice of America, you know, the government-funded media organization that released this video in 2008, titled, quote, Minorities Will Become the Majority by 2042. So here and they're not going to go anywhere. We're going to see more coming. The trend is national. The U.S. Census Bureau says minorities, now roughly one-third of the U.S. population, are expected to be the majority 
by 2042. By 2050, minorities, including black Americans, Hispanics, and Asians, will make up 54% of the population. Hispanic people, because of immigration and high birth rates, will be 30% of Americans. 62% of the nation's children will be from minority groups. And again, you've got to ask, okay, so what? What's the so what? What's the punchline? What's the point of talking about this so obsessively? And again, we didn't want it to have to be about race. We said this in the last episode. We don't like having to talk about race. But they are forcing it to this point by shoving race down our throats every other day to the point where now, you know, this was 2008. Here we are, you know, last year, if those of you who don't remember, Nickelodeon, the kids' channel, the same, the channel that airs shows like SpongeBob, had an eight minute and 46 second period where it was dead black. It was supposed to be both during show and commercials, and it was just black on the screen for eight minutes and 46 seconds with the words, I can't breathe, to symbolize, you know, supposedly how long. Officer Chauvin's neck was supposed or knee was supposedly on George Floyd's neck, even though it actually wasn't. And this is and little kids were seeing this. And there were stories of like little kids scared, like, mommy, what's happening? Why is this on TV? Is, is there someone dying and trying to send a message on TV? Like, what's happening here? They have no idea what's going on. They are trying to shove this down our throats because they know that the end game is something that will involve all Americans, even if it's not even if they're not political. Well, and if you watch this video, you think, okay, well, like you said, so what? Why is this? Why are they making a segment about this on Voice of America? I mean, it's, we've always had immigrants come here. It's it's not a big deal. Why are they Why are they talking about this? But if you listen to in the average conservative, this is really why this is happening because we don't have a real American right. There is no real right wing in this country because conservatives are essentially just neoliberals who like the military. That's that's really all they are. They're just a bunch of neoliberals who like spending a bunch of money on the military. And the average conservative would look at this and say, okay, that's wonderful. We got people coming into this country because America is so wonderful and so great. People from all over the world are wanting to come into this country and build a better life for themselves and their families. They're going to grow up to be great Americans. And because they believe in the freedom of America. They believe in our ideas. They believe in what the founding fathers believed in. And right, right. Like, America is just so great because we have people from all over the world that want to come here and live here. But what do these people actually think about the people who already live here? Let's, uh, let's listen. That's a big thing now. White people getting scared. We got a black president. Mexicans coming over here in truckloads. 2050, you guys are going to be a minority, which is awesome. I cannot wait. Because by that time, be rich and famous. Um, be rich and famous, have a big old house, and hire all white people to do my landscaping. Yeah. And while they're doing my landscaping, I'm going to hire two Mexican guys that don't speak English to tell them what to do. That was a guy named Roger Lizaola. Lizaola. Lizaola, thank you. On a program called Laughs, which airs on Fox, Fox stations of all things. And that was their YouTube channel, Laughs TV Show. First off, can I just say, this, this is something else that needs to be said. This was in 2015, by the way. This needs to be said. Comedy isn't funny anymore. Like, I'm sorry, that wasn't funny. Even from an objective standpoint, that's not funny. Like, that, that's the, the, the comedic, his delivery and inflection is all wrong. I can't even tell if that's his real voice or if that's just him doing a weird voice on purpose because that voice sounds really weird. But, like, that's him using comedy as a guise to mock white people, which it's pretty, you could argue maybe the, the plausible deniability, oh, no, no, it's just a stand-up, it's just a stand-up, but I'm like, I don't know. I, looking in his face and, like, the, the look in his eyes, there's the kind of, 
he's delivering funny lines, but there's a kind of anger in his eyes as he is saying these right, things. Right, right. Like it's okay. He's going to hire. He's going to hire all white guys to do his landscaping. Okay, a lot of Mexicans do landscaping. Okay, that's I get. The, I get the joke, and it is funny if he's making a joke. But the thing is, he's not making a joke. He no. has there's deep seated resentment and hatred in there that he's expressing through his comedic act. This is this isn't. It's it's yeah it's funny on the surface level, but if he really didn't dislike white people or didn't resent white people, I don't think you'd be making the joke. That's well, just that's just the impression that I get. Especially considering that even more terrifying that is the audience laughing. I'm trying to imagine that that probably there probably are quite a few people white people in the audience who are laughing at that joke. Well, they're not like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and all these rich white people who send their kids to be indoctrinated in this stuff because they they look at the way things are going and they're like, okay, there there is this is a uh, this is a freight train that's running over American uh, society and culture right now. This isn't going to be stopped. So if we want to preserve our wealth and our influence, we need to act like the the guilty whites. We need to become the punching bag for all of these non-white people who want to beat up white people. And they'll let us keep our power and influence if we do that. Or alternatively, it's those who genuinely might deep down might be against this and are inwardly thinking, OK, wait a minute. I'm not OK with this. This is not right. But they know they can't dare speak up and say anything like that because then they get completely ostracized and get, you know, severed pig's heads thrown on their porches before they even know it. So is this a conspiracy theory? Well, like I mentioned earlier, just like with anti-Semites who don't believe – who claim they don't believe in the Holocaust, they will try to convince you that the Holocaust doesn't never existed. But then they'll secretly and even sometimes explicitly say that they wish it had existed. So with the people who claim that this great replacement theory is allegedly a myth, you'll see them turn around and celebrate this alleged myth while it's happening and applaud the fact that it's happening. This is from Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times. This article was written October 29th, 2018. This was during the Georgia gubernatorial race between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. And she says, right now, America is tearing itself apart as an embittered white conservative minority clings to power, terrified at being swamped by a new multiracial polyglot majority. The divide feels especially stark in Georgia, where the midterm election is a battle between Trumpist reaction and the multicultural America whose emergence the right is trying at all costs to forestall. Uh, if only. <laughs> I, I wish the right was trying to forestall that. I mean, so far, the right doesn't even seem to be willing to throw, uh, as they call, as they say, dog whistles. I mean, that, what I mean, Tucker Carlson's monologue is kind of an exception. We don't really see the right doing much to push uh, doing much to push back against this. But she goes on. Abrams goal to my Stacey Abrams is to put together a coalition of African-American and other minority voters and white liberals. The potential is there. Georgia is less than 53 percent non-Hispanic white. Georgia is a blue state if everybody votes, deposed Porter, chairman of the Democratic Party of Georgia, told me. Her opponent, the Georgia Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, ahead by a couple of percentage points in the polls, doesn't want to see that happen. Well, I wish that Brian Kemp would actually come out and say that he doesn't want to see that happen. But maybe he would maybe Georgia would actually still have two Republican senators if they would have actually come out and said that they don't want to see that happen. But she goes on. Kemp is the candidate of aggrieved whiteness. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. All right, during, sure. During the primary, he ran an ad boasting that he drives a big truck just in case I need to round up, crim- round up criminal illegals and take them home myself. How is that a matter of aggrieved whiteness? I mean, I, I've heard plenty of black people talk about how they don't want illegal immigrants coming here taking their jobs. That's not that doesn't really have anything to do with whiteness. That's just a matter of national. You know, we don't. No country wants that. I guarantee you, if a bunch of, of white Americans were to flood into Mexico illegally. 
the Mexicans would want to round them up in a truck and take them back to Texas. That that's not doesn't have anything to do with whiteness. And once again, they make everything about race, and you to the point that you have to ask, okay, why do they keep obsessively making it about race? Exactly. They they claim that people who, that they claim that white Americans are obsessed about not becoming a minority. That this is a fear that entrenched white political interests don't want don't want to see white people become a minority. But most white people don't even talk about this stuff. They're the ones who keep bringing it up. So and then so you've got to ask yourself, are they trying to make white people a minority? And whenever they talk about it, I mean, the only answer is yes. I mean, you hear Nancy Pelosi, she claims that her grandson wishes he weren't white. You hear Joe Biden claiming that his people who look like him of European stock, they will be a minority. And that's a good thing. We should celebrate that. That will make America a better country. So America isn't a good country because the majority hails from Europe. That's what he's implying. And then we see authors who basically explicitly endorse the idea of making white people a minor, uh, minority. And this is what this author, Michelle Goldberg, does at the end of this article. She says, but the forces of democracy are rising too. In Georgia's highly diverse seventh district, Carlin Bordeaux, part of the wave of women inspired to run for office by revulsion at Trump, is challenging Representative Rod, um, Rob Whittle, a Republican. Bordeaux said the seventh, a majority minority district with immigrants from all over the world, has been on the front lines of voter suppression. Of course, you know, because they've got to show ID, show that they're not an illegal alien to vote, then that's voter suppression. Also got to love they called it the forces of democracy. Whenever they win, it's it's a massive win for democracy. They have to throw those buzzwords in to sound cute and universal. So, but if you if you read between the lines, she's claiming that the forces of democracy are rising because, and she then she immediately goes into a minority a minority majority district in Georgia. So the implication from that is that we don't have democracy as long as white people are a majority. I mean, think about that. You you can't have democracy if white people are a majority in any district. So in order to bring democracy, you have to increase the percentage of non-whites so everyone is a minority. And this ties into their view of democracy, and this is something the Republican Party still hasn't picked up on. When they talk about democracy, they're not talking about one man, one vote. They're, they're no. talking about one group, one vote. They're also talking about kind of retroactively – making amends for previous eras in which some people didn't have the vote. So essentially, oh, we deserve more voting rights because we didn't have them back then. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. But the way that they want to get those more voting rights is by bringing in more groups of people so they yeah. can corral the groups behind their candidates. Because American white people are still operating under the assumption, just like I mentioned earlier, they're still operating under the assumption that we have an unbiased judicial system, that we have the rule of law in this country, Not that after today. we still have democracy in this country. But the thing – the reason why the right can't seem to win anything is because they will use the same language as the left. They're like, yeah, I support democracy. And the left says, yes, I support democracy. But their definition of democracy is completely different because according to uh, Goldberg's democracy uh, definition of democracy, you obviously can't have democracy if you have a majority white congressional district. So she concludes the article by saying in a week, American voters can do to white nationalists what they fear the most, show them they're being replaced. So well, hold on. So we went from, you know, all white people to just white nationalists. So, Wait a second. So, so apparently uh, whites are white nationalists. So they can show white nationalists that they are being that they can show them what they fear the most, show them that they're being replaced. So remember, on the one hand, it's a conspiracy theory. It doesn't but then exist. On the other hand, it's poning them. You know, uh, ha ha. We got the last laugh losers. Well, right. But white. So they're claiming that white nationalists are proposed are putting forward this conspiracy theory that their people are being replaced. But then Goldberg says in a week, talking about the election in 2018, in a week, American voters can do to white nationalists what they fear most, 
show them that they're being replaced. In other words, show them that they're right, that they are right. I was they just going to say, so tell the Richard Spencers of the world that they're right is their plan here? That or? that appears to be the plan. So on the one hand, just like Holocaust deniers, on the one hand, it's not happening. It never happened. But then on the other hand, it is happening, and we should celebrate it. So yeah, yeah they want to have their cake and eat it too. But remember that New York Times article after the Virginia State House flipped blue in 2019? It was entitled, How Voters Turned Virginia from Deep Red to Solid Blue. And it was talking about how the Northern Virginia area has – we've had a lot more non-white voters become American citizens. A lot of immigrants from non-white countries have moved to Northern Virginia, and now they're voting Democrat, and that's the reason why Virginia is turning blue. That's, that's true to an extent. I would argue that the Republican Party has done a really poor job of maintaining Virginia's white voters, but that's, that's a topic for a different day. But this, is, this shows that they see a clear-cut path to victory – by making America a less white nation. And again, if you just – all you got to do is Google this stuff. You know, um, Whites are becoming a minority and you see article after article celebrating the fact. And this is an article by Paul Taylor in the American Prospect in 2018. It's entitled, They're a Blue Tidal Wave If They Vote. That's the title. The subtitle is, Today's teens are likely to be even more progressive than the millennials who voted in 2018, but will they show up? So – for reference, Paul Taylor is a boomer liberal. He's, he's a liberal boomer who is interested in America becoming a more progressive nation, a more left-wing nation. He wants to see the Democratic Party become left-wing and, and continue to win elections and gain a permanent majority. So he opens the article by talking about how a lot of teens aren't interested in voting. They're not interested in democracy. And he's talking about how uh, these the samples he's talking about are in New York City and Washington, D.C. It talks about one school that he spoke at where it was all black and Hispanic kids. So about uh, halfway through the article, he's talking about uh, this girl named Chloe. He says, Chloe weighed in softly. Quote, my mom says every vote counts. She says the reason we got Trump is that too many people didn't vote, and everything he's done since he got elected has been racist. If we get someone new, maybe things will get better. Another round of awkward silence. The class was like a jury mulling over two closing arguments, neither of which it found persuasive. Luis spoke next. Quote, America has always been racist, he said. With Trump, people are just more upfront about it. Where are they hearing this stuff at, I wonder? Well, well, the first girl gave it away. She said, my mom says. Like, it's pretty obvious, once again, that like Nancy Pelosi indoctrinating her grandson, that he should hate the color of his own skin. These parents are telling their kids what to think. Right. Well, the parents are telling the kids uh, their version of America, that America is a racist country, that Trump is racist. But think about where their parents are getting this information from, because Trump was never considered a racist. If you go back to the 90s, go back to the early 2000s, black people love Trump. Trump Snoop Dogg, Dennis Rodman, they all loved him. Yeah, Trump was an icon in the black community. They they saw him as the like that was the big thing back in the nineties. Like with rappers, they wanted they wanted to flash their wealth and everything. And Trump was was their he was like their role model because Trump has always been like that. And that he wanted to flash his wealth. He wanted to show everyone he was rich. He never tried to hide it. But you know, this girl Chloe. She says that her mom tells her that everything that Trump has done since he got elected was racist. So where is she getting this impression that everything Trump did was racist? So cutting taxes was racist. You know, everything that Trump did since he got elected was racist. Well, she's obviously getting that from the pundits who go on MSNBC and CNN. These pundits are typically upper middle class black folks who are jealous of upper middle class white folks and rich white folks because – D.C. in many ways is a microcosm of this media elite that you live in. If you think about the way D.C. is laid out, D.C. is the most segregated city in America. If you go to the east side of the Anacostia River, there's a few nice upper middle class black neighborhoods. Those upper middle class black neighborhoods are not on par with the upper middle class white neighborhoods on the west side of D.C. And what you have is you have a black upper middle class elite 
that is jealous of the black of the white upper middle class elite and feel like if they were white, they would have more money than what they do now. They have more power, more prestige. So they're lashing out by pro- projecting their, you know, their anti-white sentiments against Donald Trump, against Republicans, against conservatives. And they're filling the minds of average working people like Chloe's mom with the idea that everything Trump did was racist, like literally everything he did. If, if, he, if he ate a Big Mac, it was racist. So and then Luis, he claims that America has always been racist from the beginning. So if Luis's parents thought that America has always been racist from the beginning, why would they have come to the United States? Why would Hispanic immigrants come to a country that hates them? Why would they come to a country that is filled with racists? I would I would argue that they don't believe that that his uh, parents and grandparents or whoever his ancestors were who immigrated here didn't believe that America was racist when they came. In fact, they probably still don't believe that it's racist. The children and grandchildren of immigrants who come here who love this who love the country and the fact that they love the opportunity it offers and they love the vision of America they have, their children and grandchildren are being indoctrinated to hate the country and they're being indoctrinated by our tax dollars. I spoke to this Indian IT worker over in Loudoun County a couple of weeks back, and he was complaining about the fact that his son is a radical and a Bernie Sanders supporter. And he couldn't figure it out. He's like, I came to this country with nothing. I worked my way up. This guy, um, he lives in the richest county in the United States. He owns property in Baltimore. And he said that his son tells him that he's a leech. And keep in mind, this guy is paying for his son's college tuition, giving him a full ride to one of the best universities in the country. He's got two sons. and He's given he's paying for both of his son's college out of pocket. And his son calls him a leech. He said, my son tells me I'm a leech because I'm making my tenants uh, pay rent. He says that I shouldn't make anyone pay rent, that these poor people in Baltimore can't afford to pay rent. I should let them live on my property for free. Their rent is paying for that kid to go to college so he can be indoctrinated in college to hate his father for making these tenants pay rent. This is what our education system is doing to young Americans who happen to not be white. They're teaching these young Americans whose parents do not hold these views that their country is racist, has always been racist, and they're indoctrinating them to hate their country and many, many times hate their parents. Well, not only that, and this is actually one of the very few times that, you know, famously we, we kind of make fun of how boomers will say like, oh, just pick yourselves up by your bootstraps, stop being lazy. Like obviously that message doesn't necessarily apply to some of the struggles that millennials and Gen Z are facing, whether it's the student loan debt crisis or increasingly difficult economy in which to try to find a job. But this is one area in which they are right, that I'm willing to bet those parents and grandparents who came here as immigrants did come here from a country that was probably not nearly as wealthy as our nation and it may have been harder to live there. And they came here to a country that had much nicer living conditions when they came here and was a better society overall, a more unified society. And they came here and they did actually build a life for themselves so that these grandkids and these kids could grow up in prosperity and happiness, not knowing what a real struggle is like. So then, of course, when they're told, oh, yeah, by the way, this country is horribly racist. You should know that, by the way. And they are going to think they're not going to know any different between the difference, the difference between an actually oppressive, impoverished nation and a nation like America. Well, Taylor, Paul Taylor goes on after the after we said that America has always been racist and with Trump, people are just more upfront about it. Taylor writes, this drew approving nods around the room and a thumbs up smirk from Brianna. She said, when I see white people now, they look at me like I make them afraid. More nods. Everyone in the room. Yeah, yeah, this is right. Can you imagine if this were a school in, in Kentucky with all white kids <laughs> and uh, they were talking about race and, and some girl said, yeah, anytime I see black people, uh, they look at me like I, I make them afraid. And everyone nods. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, that's the way black people think. Can you, can 
can you imagine the articles that would be written about that oh, girl? They would and her call family? this girl. They would dox her and oh, get her completely ruined and kicked burn out her of house down. They'd claim they'd send in reporters from every outlet to talk about this racist town in Kentucky with all these uh, all these uh, all these white people with outdated views. Taylor goes on. These teenagers belong to the most distinctive coming-of-age generation in American history. Today's old skew white and conservative. Today's young skew brown and progressive. We've never had such a big chasm between the two. So here's where Taylor gets it wrong, and this is where a lot of white boomers get it wrong. They look, they listen to what these people, these kids are saying about America, about the fact that they they hate America, they're afraid to live in America as brown and black people. They look at white people with suspicion. They're afraid that white people are gonna gonna hurt them or discriminate against them. And these white older progressives, they look at that as a positive development because remember back in their day, skepticism of America, of American history, of the narrative of American history was part and parcel of being a liberal by being by questioning America's founding, by not worshiping American America's heroes. That was being liberal. What they don't understand is this is something else. This isn't progressive politics. These kids aren't progressive. Like part of being a progressive is you want to see progress. That means economic progress. You want increased government spending on stuff like uh, I don't know, like mass transit. That like those are progressive policies. Social to, to help bring up social like uh, like programs that help the working poor, that help everybody in society. Those are that's part of the progressive platform. What these kids are talking, the way these kids are talking, this isn't progressivism. This is regression to tribalism. This is ethno nationalism. All these different groups. They've all got their own ethnic – they've all got – and he's going to talk about this later. They've all got their own ethnic tribal loyalties, and it's not loyalty to a progressive ideal. He says, for a liberal boomer like myself, there's much to admire about the young, their passion for social justice, their empathy for the underdog, their celebration of racial and gender diversity, their respect for rules, their penchant for, for collaboration. Respect for rules. Well, yeah, tell of, that to the rioters last year. Well, none of <laughs> the this, rules that were respected. Well, none of what he's mentioning here is alluded to by anything that these students say. So he says their passion for social justice. Well, if you look at, listen to what they say, social justice, that just means redistribution from white people to them, just taking from white people and giving it to them. That's not social justice. Again, every time they say justice, know that it really means vengeance. It's not justice. It's about payback. Their empathy for the underdog. Well, what about poor white people? The people in Oakland, this Oakland City Council, if you remember, they passed a law recently that gave $50,000 to anyone – or no, no, it gave uh, monthly checks, so UBI, to anyone making less than $50,000, white people excluded. So if you make less than $50,000 in Oakland, California, you happen to be white, you don't get a monthly check. But if you identify as non-white, then you do get a monthly check. I wonder if they're very empathetic to these poor white folks and uh, these young people who view white people like this. I wonder if they're very empathetic to the poor white folks of Oakland, California. Their celebration of racial and gender diversity. Well, I mean, I would argue that they're more interested in that because they see that's just basically what the progressives push and they see progressives as keeping conservative racists at bay. Their, uh, their respect for rules, like you said, they don't respect rules. Rules were created by white people. Their penchant for collaboration. They don't have any penchant for collaboration. They're interested in their own narrow ethnic goals. He says, but there are troubling signs too, a victim mentality. Well, who's who's producing that victim mentality? It's the white progressives. An intolerance of viewpoint diversity. Well, of course, if you view white people as racist, why would you respect their viewpoint? A distrust of institutions. Of course, those institutions were created by white people. A wariness about human nature, an aversion to risk. A cynicism about the whole American experiment. And here's the problem. The United States is not an experiment. The United States is a country with people, actual people, 
who are Americans, who think of themselves as Americans, not people who think of themselves as English, Irish, Italian mutts, but people who think of themselves as ethnically American. I don't know who my ancestors were. I don't care who my ancestors were. I don't care what uh, area of the country of the world they came from or what those countries are called today or what languages they speak today. I couldn't care less. I'm an American, period. Plain vanilla American. And but that's not the view that these progressive ha- progressives have of the United States. They view the United States as an island. So imagine if you had a bunch of people from around the world and they decided we're going to go create a utopia. So they decide to go inhabit an uninhabited island. Or if you want to if you want to look at it the way progressives look at, it, there are native inhabitants of that island. So they decide to go kill off all the native inhabitants and build their utopia on the island. So all these people go build their utopia to start an experiment. That's the way they view America. They don't view it as as a as a country, as a real country. They just view it as an experiment. So he's most concerned that these young people don't have faith. They're cynical about the American experiment. And this is what we see with Joe Biden. This is what we see with the Democrats right now. This is why they put so much stock in the Chauvin trial. They see a conviction of Chauvin as a way for them to validate the American experiment because they see all these non-whites who are coming here from other countries. And they see the skepticism they have of the United States as a whole. Many of them just want to completely undo the United States. On my way here tonight, there were a couple of people on the street with a bullhorn. This is after the conviction of Chauvin. They were yelling, no justice in a racist system, no justice in a racist system. And it was it was one white guy and one black girl. They were on a corner. It's, it's so funny because it's this is it's so funny. The, the outcast. So nobody else showed up to the party. That, nobody else showed up to the party, and it's after work hours, so everyone's gone home. They, hardly anybody is out there. They're staying on the street corner, yelling in a bullhorn. No justice in a racist system. I'm thinking, well, Chauvin got convicted. What do you mean there's no justice? This is what you wanted. Again, there it's not justice. It's vengeance. It's they, vengeance. But also, remember, if you, I don't know if you heard about that caucus, that supposed America First caucus that Marjorie e, Taylor Greene. Yeah, Marjorie started. Taylor Greene, Paul Gozar, and Matt Gates were allegedly going to start. So one of the thing, one of the objections to that was that it mentioned that we're based on Anglo-Saxon culture. That was one of their biggest. I was like, oh no, that's that's code word for for white supremacy. There, so they object to Anglo-Saxon culture. But our laws are based on Anglo-Saxon common law. English common law is the basis of our legal system. So you can't reject Anglo-Saxon culture and then still keep Anglo-Saxon law. That's a contradiction. And eventually that's the goal. That's why they're saying no justice in a racist system because our system of trial by jury, our system of checks and balances, our system of the rule of law, that is from the Anglo-Saxon tradition. Well, if they look at it, they say, well, I'm not Anglo-Saxon. Why should I be subject to Anglo-Saxon traditions and English common law if I'm not English? And they have a point. You can't reject Anglo-Saxon culture and still keep the Anglo-Saxon legal framework. So that's why Joe Biden and the Democrats were so keen on seeing a conviction on all three counts of Chauvin, because they want to try to prove to this rising majority of non-whites that, look, our system does work. This cop got convicted. You don't need to throw out the, the whole system of justice. We, it does work. For the first time, so Taylor goes on, for the first time ever, half of all Americans under the age of 20 are Hispanic, black, Asian American, or mixed race. They're the mosaic created by a modern immigration wave that has brought more than 60 million newcomers here since 1965, nearly 9 in 10 of them non-white. Remember, this is just a conspiracy theory. White people aren't being replaced. This it's is a, just a, it's a white nationalist conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy theory. theory if you don't approve of it. If, it if, it's, if you do approve of it, then it's real. Correct, correct. And that's where, that's where Taylor's at. He admits that he's a liberal boomer, and so, of course, he approves of it because he's under the impression that all these non-white people are going to be progressives rather than tribalistic regressives, which is what we're going to see within the next few decades if somebody doesn't put a stop to this. For them, diversity isn't merely demography. 
It's the beating heart of their value system. This is just projection. This is again. he's just projecting his ideals onto them. <laughs> exactly. But, and I think going back to what you said too, that you know he oh says this is the most progressive generation ever. I'm thinking, well, why is that really the most progressive? Why is that? If that is true, why is that the case? It's because all the previous generations, including this liberal boomer, have viewed progressivism as just part of their political beliefs. It's one aspect of their lives. It's their political beliefs. For these kids, for millennial, the youngest millennials, and certainly for Gen Z, it's not just politics to them. It literally is their life. They're seeing it in TV shows. Again, Nickelodeon broadcasting an I can't breathe message for eight minutes and 46 seconds and shows on Netflix and whatnot increasingly having every fifth character is a genderqueer, whatever, something, something. And between and social media, even the little things, a friend of mine actually sent me this. This is a screenshot from Snapchat, which is one of the apps that defines Gen Z. This is from the homepage where they have a variety of curated stories from various news outlets and whatnot. And this one comes from an outlet called Excuse Me What? And the headline is the most racist town in America with a couple of worried face emojis. And the picture is a a guy, a white guy, an older white man wearing a red Trump hat. And behind him is a flagpole. What's on the flagpole? Is it a Nazi flag? Is it even the Confederate flag? No, it's the American flag and a Trump 2020 flag. And they just use that to say, oh, this is a symbol of racism, an American flag and a Trump flag. And that's just that's the homepage of a social one of the most popular social media apps for this generation. They see it. They don't even think twice about it being political. They just think, oh, that's just the way things are. This It's a part of their life because it's been ingrained into their heads for their entire lives that this isn't even a matter of politics. This is just this is just how the world is. Well, they're living in homogenous areas in the sense that they live around their tribe. So they're if they get constant reinforcement of the belief that white people hate them, the white people despise them, then they're naturally going to believe and then that Trump is a racist. They're just going to believe it because they haven't – They've many of them don't actually talk to any white people. They don't actually know any white people. And if they do, they're, they're like uh, you know, the, the, the hippies that inhabit these, uh, these places um, that they live in, like these urban ghettos. But Taylor says throughout the 20th century, melting pot was our go-to metaphor for an America transformed by immigration. It no longer parses. And th- that was another mistake. America was never a melting pot. We were English. We were we had an English cultural framework. Our founders all spoke English as their native language. Everyone here who wasn't English had to learn English. Like if they were if they came from Germany, once we became the United States, their children had to learn English. The English English speaking Americans didn't learn German or allow them their separate German schools. Once we had public schools, that was actually a big fight 100 years ago, whether or not we could have separate German public schools. And Americans were like, hell no, we're not going to have German schools. This is America. We speak English in America. But according to this guy, even melting pot is problematic. He says it no longer parses. Given their skin color, today's immigrants and their children couldn't melt if they wanted to. Think about that statement. Because of their skin color, they couldn't melt if they wanted to. In other words, he's he's saying that non-white people can't assimilate into American society. They cannot become ethnic Americans. And he goes on, and most don't want to. They want to live in a society where boundaries of race, gender, and sexual orientation are porous, and everyone is free to be whoever he, she, they wants. Not a melting pot, a mosaic, which is my nominee for a label for this new generation. Get me the puke bowl! Oh, the the self-righteousness. It's like those Wikipedia users, the smug arrogance. I'm right, and I know, oh, yes, with my pedigree, I am right, and you plebeians who dare disagree with me are just wrong. Like, it's just, oh, the arrogance. This is, 
what Trump was talking about when he said enemy of the people. When these people, these so-called reporters and journalists, deliberately stoke up racial tensions like this. And the media definitely plays a huge role in this for ratings. You had that, that Project Veritas video, that undercover video of the CNN guy literally admitting, oh yeah, we really hyped up COVID and make it sound worse than it really was because, and hyped up the deaths and everything because that gets ratings. We want ratings. All they want is ratings, even if it means literally stoking a race war in this country, which is what they're going for. They're I, really I would disagree with that because I don't think that the people who run CNN just want ratings. They don't just want the money. They they are ideologically driven. They they, they are ideological, but I think at the end of the day, they also are motivated by ratings. Well, like, true. It's, it's, it's they have both. to have ratings in order to, to stay obviously to stay afloat financially but the people who run these news organizations they they're like john this jonathan greenblatt guy they will claim on the one hand that replacement theory is a white nationalist myth and on the other hand they celebrate it because they see that it's going to empower their uh, this is this is a misconception that a lot of white progressives have the reason why they're celebrating massive immigration they just want to throw open the gates have unbridled constant a constant flow like uh, like Joe Biden said waves and waves constant waves we need constant waves of immigration the reason why they want that is because like this misguided progressive writer they are under the misconception that if we let in a bunch of non-whites into the country we'll have the progressive country that they envision what we're going to have is Los Angeles. What we're going to have is Detroit. What we're going to end up having, the entire country is eventually going to become what Minneapolis is today. But Taylor goes on. Uh, it says mosaics are a tsunami in waiting. Four million, talking about four million of these uh, these non-whites, will turn 18 this year. Another four million next year and so on for as far as the eye can see. If you're wondering why the new guard of the Democratic Party has put forward such an audacious agenda this year – Wealth tax, carbon neutral economy, tuition free college, Medicare for all, universal child care, racial reparations, wonder no more. They're racing left to keep pace with their future base, which wants leaders who shoot for the moon. And this is again, this is projection. Everything on that list, except for racial reparations, are things that most of these teenagers couldn't care less about. They don't care anything about Medicare for all. They don't care anything about universal child care. You think they want their tax dollars to go pay for the Medicare of some racist boomer in Kentucky? You think they want their tax dollars to pay for universal child care of white kids so they can grow up to be a white supremacist? They don't care anything. Or a carbon-neutral economy? None of these kids buy into this stupid, uh, you know, the, the stupid climate change nonsense. If they do, the only reason why they do is because they see it as a ticket to help make white people a minority and boost their own ethnicity. But this guy, he claims that the Democratic Party is racing left to keep pace with their future base, assuming that the future base is left wing. The future base is tribalistic. And as tribals, they will vote for whichever party that they feel is not racist. So the Democratic Party, the Nancy Pelosi's in the Democratic Party, they feel emboldened to pass it, just everything like this H.R. 1 bill. They feel like they can just shoot for the moon. Because all they have – they don't actually have to defend any of these issues. All they've got to do is go to the, the people and say Republicans are racist. Vote for us. And they're like, OK, we're voting Democrat. We don't want white racists running our lives. They vote Democrat. They don't look at what the Democratic Party stands for. They don't know what a carbon tax means. Like us, like, like this guy in PG County talked to, they don't know what standard deduction means. They don't know what any of that stuff means. All they know is Republicans are white and racist, so they're going to vote for the party that's going to protect them from being deported or genocided. But the same survey shows that Chloe's civic hopefulness resonates especially with minority teens. Some 63 percent of black and 62 percent of Hispanic mosaics. 
Wait, what? Like he calls them mosaics. Hold on. Wait, what? Is that that's not a typo? No, it's not a typo. He, he capitalizes mosaics, so he's going to call non-white teens mosaics. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yes, the most oppressed race in history, mosaics. Man, I see that mural on the wall when I walk by. And I just want to throw paint on it. Screw that mural. Screw I, that mosaic. I can just see. I can just see these teens out in the streets holding up a fist. Mosaic pride. Mosaics go to the back of the bus. So he says that these mosaics say that ordinary citizens can do a lot to influence government in Washington, D.C. So remember, at first they were saying they don't vote. They're not interested in politics, or at least this girl Chloe was saying, because the, the government – she was – at first, at the beginning of the article, I didn't read. She's saying that you know I take care of – if I'm going to pay rent or get a job, that's my responsibility. Government is going to do that for me. But notice he says that these students believe that ordinary citizens can do a lot. That 62 percent of these mosaics say that ordinary citizens can do a lot to influence the government in Washington, D.C., that, that's high. So that's it's like that's a good thing. OK, well, th- that means 62 percent of them will probably vote, which is kind of a little bit higher than what most Americans vote. He says it's a view that's shared by just 45 percent of white teens. So these white teens, only only 45 percent of them. That's not surprising because teenagers typically aren't interested that interested in politics. But notice the difference. Why are there so many more of these mosaics, as he calls them, that are interested, that believe that ordinary people can change policy in Washington, D.C., as opposed to white teens? He says the survey question didn't ask about voting, so it doesn't specifically talk about voting. So it's possible these young respondents were thinking about the protest marches that have proliferated during the age of Trump. So this is key, and this is this is extremely dangerous to our country. A high number, almost two-thirds of these non-white teens believe that ordinary citizens can change things in Washington, D.C., but they're not thinking about voting. They're not thinking that ordinary citizens can change things by voting. They're thinking ordinary citizens can change things by marching on Washington, D.C. Think about the Democratic Party's mythology. They point back to the March on Washington in 1963 as the defining moment in our nation's history that changed things for the better. They point to the March for Our Lives. They point to the Black Lives Matter marches. This is how they view democracy. They're essentially admitting that it's all about mob rule. It's all about mob rule. Groups of people, groups of ethnicities organize their clan, their coalition, and they take to the streets and they march, sometimes peacefully, sometimes not so peacefully. But their presence in the streets is what causes change to happen in Washington, D.C., not peacefully lobbying, not going and talking to legislators. So when you think about it, they're pointing to the so-called white nationalists, and they're saying white nationalists are afraid that white people are going to become a minority because they're racist, and they think that these non-white people are tribalistic, that they're not civilized, that they're not going to that they're going to destroy the country and make it into a third world country. But you think about it: how do third world people settle differences? They settle those differences in the streets. They settle it through civil wars. They'll have some of these countries in Africa. They'll have a civil war every five years. Like they'll just schedule a new civil war whenever they want change to happen. They don't actually go to the polls and vote and have a civil, you know, go lobby their congressman and go talk to him in a civil manner. They just get on the, in the street and riot. And then the politicians are like, hey, we want to we, we want to keep our lives and property. So we're going to give in and do what they want. And this is the kind of democracy that they're bringing to America. This is their vision for America. This is what the Democratic Party wants, and they're very open about it. And the reason why they're charging full steam ahead is because Republicans are too stupid to catch on to what's happening. Republicans are still living in the past. In this instance, Democrats are correct that Republicans are living in the past. They're still living in the Cold War. They're not recognizing the danger at hand. And the danger at hand is very simply this. Democrats want America to be a country in which the individual does not matter. Groups matter. Groups of people matter. You don't have Americans. You have Italians, English, Irish, Pakistanis, Mexicans, African-Americans, Native Americans. All these different groups exist in their own little world, 
and they all vote as groups in their group interests. And you have a coalition of different tribes, basically like the United Nations. They want to turn the United States, they want to transform it from a country into a mini United Nations. And they see the quickest way to get there is by making white people a minority and bringing in as many non-whites as they possibly can. After you examine the evidence, the only conclusion you can draw is that white replacement is real. It is not a conspiracy theory. It is not a myth. It is being pushed and encouraged by the Democratic Party, by the media establishment, by the academic establishment. And they're doing it because they see it as their the elites, the, specifically the white elite. They see it as a step toward permanent rule for their class. I, all I can say really is to go back, as you said, you know, they're focusing on tribalism. They're just turning – they're determined to turn all of their constituents into tribalistic groups based, of course, on race because that is the one major difference along with gender. I mean, of course, they believe you can change your gender. But realistically, race is one thing you can't change about yourself. So when you divide yourself along – you divide your society along lines that cannot be changed, there really is going to be no peaceful resolution to this conflict that they have created, this artificial conflict in our society. And I'm going back to what you said to conclude – to wrap this up. You said that they are so smug about declaring that they want to prove white nationalists right by replacing them. Let's do the one thing they say is going to happen and prove their conspiracy theory to be true. That's my greatest fear with all of this is that, again, we don't like talking about race, but we have no choice because they brought it to this point. One of the laws of physics, I believe, states that uh, for every reaction, there is always an equal opposite reaction. The pendulum swing in politics, as it's known. Not necessarily that there may be a societal pendulum swing. They're like, oh, America's going to swing right back to Trump in 2024. Again, with voter fraud, that might not necessarily happen. But th- all this is going to, when they spend all this time in this institutional power for years on end, drilling it into people's heads, especially kids. Oh, you are racist. This country's racist. You're racist because you're white. You should be embarrassed of yourself. You should apologize for your skin color. You should hate your ancestors. You should you know, grovel at our feet. You should wash our shoes on live national TV, wash our feet. All this is going to do is create a whole new generation, a whole new wave of reactionaries among white people, especially young white men, and you're going to create actual white nationalists. And that's not going to make the situation any better. But of course, they don't care because they're convinced that they will win in the end. So if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to give us a like on all the various social media platforms where we post this. Give us a like on YouTube. Give us a like on BitChute and Rumble. Be sure to subscribe to us on those alternate video sharing platforms as well. Be sure to follow us on Gab and on Minds and, of course, on Facebook as well. At The Right Take, you can find the full list of all the social media platforms where we are available at righttakepodcast.com slash contact. So with that said, we will talk to you guys next week. <laughs>